Our scripture text tonight comes from Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. What difference does Pentecost make? If you have been around churches a little while, you might know the right answer theologically. Pentecost is the day when Jesus, after ascending to the Father, gives the gift of the Spirit to his people to empower us for life and mission. Uh, In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit visited the people of God occasionally on leaders and prophets. In the New Covenant, the Spirit lives within each of us. But... What does that actually mean? You know, you would think that preaching on the Holy Spirit would be the easiest kind of preaching a pastor might do. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the source of our Christian life. Uh, I love the Holy Spirit deeply. I have an intimate relationship with Him. I find it very difficult to teach or write about the Holy Spirit in a way that makes your heart come alive with a desire to know him more. When I was praying about this, a friend said, don't make this an intellectual series, please. Um, In seminary, we had a whole course called The Doctrine of Pneumatology. And if there's any way to make the Holy Spirit boring, um, Dr. Sosi did, God rest his soul. Um, And I will try not to do that tonight. And so uh, I, I asked the Lord, well, How how should I do this? This is uh, Pentecost. It's an important time in the life of our church. I kind of sense the winds of the Spirit kicking up a bit. Uh, I'd kind of like to talk about that. Um, Where should I begin? And I I just sensed him kind of taking me back to my own relationship with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, five books came to mind uh, that mentored me in my walk with the Spirit. One of them was from my freshman year in college, 1979. The next four I read the five years after I left seminary, 1987 to 1992. And uh, these were uh, writers who invited me into the life of the Spirit. And, And over the next five weeks, I want to bore you to death with book reports. No, that's not what I want to do. Over the next five weeks, I want to share with you the biblical principles that I learned from these mentors, and I want to share a little bit about how they've shaped my life in the Spirit, and I want to encourage you to explore how they might deepen your own life in the Spirit. Uh, The books are not perfect. I don't necessarily agree with everything in each one. They're all products of the age in which they are written. Furthermore, the five are all written by white males, and that means that my understanding of the Spirit and His ministry is incomplete, And so today, uh, I am trying to to learn theology from 
women and people of color because for 40 years, 98% of everything I read was by a white male. And now I want to share with you what I believe to be a prophetic word that has been on my heart for about a month. I believe a woman writer from our church will write a significant book on the spiritual life that will impact Christian leaders for generations. And I believe it will happen sometime in the next 50 years. I'm not sure, but I believe she may be listening to the sermon tonight, either in the room or online. And if you are listening, no, you do not need to go to seminary to write the book. I became a Christian in the spring of 1976 at a youth group meeting. I was 15. I was told cute girls attended, and that was my motive. But something more was happening. At the end of the Bible study, Mr. Widows shared a simple gospel message, and he asked us to pray to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and I did. I did not feel anything, but I knew that I wanted to start going to church. The church was a long walk from my house, but I began walking on Sunday mornings to Grace Brethren Church in Worthington, Ohio. The pastor's name was Jim Custer. He was an outstanding Bible expositor. Some mornings the sermon was so powerful I would stay for the second service. I learned many things from Pastor Jim during those high school years, but I don't remember hearing much about the Holy Spirit. When I arrived in the fall of 1979 in Evanston, Illinois to study journalism at Northwestern, I prayed, God, show me how I can grow in my faith. And I was walking down Sheridan Boulevard, and a woman approached me and said, Would you like to go to a Bible study? And I thought, God has answered my prayer. This is great. I got involved in the Bible study. A month later, I realized I joined a cult. Um, So I quit that cult. And then a much older man, who was a sophomore in college, um, named Mike McClymond, Uh, who, by the way, now is a leading scholar on Jonathan Edwards, uh, said, I'm part of a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Would you come and uh, be a part of a Bible study? And we did. And that fall, Mike shared with us a simple book. It's really a tract on the Holy Spirit called Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? That's what it was called. And if we could pop that up there. um, That's the cover. The book was written by Bill Bright in 1966. He was a businessman who founded this ministry called Campus Crusade, which now is called Crew, at UCLA in 1951. And he was very frustrated with the church's ability to to, to mentor people, to disciple people. And so he started his own organization to do that. Sandy became a follower of Christ in 1978 at a high school ministry in Arrowhead Springs, California, through this ministry. Uh, We went to a summer project in Wildwood, New Jersey in 1982, or at 1981, and then we went to the Soviet Union with crew in 1982. We considered applying for staff in 1983. The money wasn't good enough, so I took a job as a youth pastor for $13,000 a year in Southern California. Um, (laughs) Dr. Bright was a genius at taking mysterious spiritual truths and making them understandable. And I think that's why I constantly return to this tract on the Holy Spirit. It's just so simple and practical. Uh, The picture of a dove was on the cover, and so we always called it the the bird book. Um, The book has weaknesses. Um, We loved tracts in the 70s. Um, We loved four laws, five principles, seven steps. 
Um, and today that language sounds kind of formulaic or kind of mechanical. Uh, the book has a tendency to categorize broad groups of people, and uh, I don't like that. In today's tribalistic world, when, when a preacher says there are three kinds of people, I kind of go, ugh, and Dr. Bright does that. I also think the book undervalues the role of emotion in the spiritual life. But one of the reasons I want to introduce you to these books is that I think there is value in reading books from past generations. Uh, most Christians today, if they read it all, only read the hottest young goateed author. And we tend to think we are far smarter than the generations that went before us, and we judge them for their petty errors. C.S. Lewis called this the fallacy of chronological snobbery. The belief that the most recent ideas are always the best and everybody before us was stupid. Um, we can learn from old books. It requires humility and overlooking certain ways of communicating and even beliefs. The way I look at it is uh, my spiritual growth and yours is like a snowball. You start with a small ball. Over the years it grows. You add layer upon layer, but you still have that ball. And so this was part of my original ball. I've added a lot to the snowball, but this is still in there. The book has impacted millions of people, including me. Forty years later, I think about it almost every day. The bird book begins with these words. The Bible tells us there are three kinds of people, (laughs) which I do not like. But there is an important spiritual principle here, and I'm going to try to walk you through this. I don't know if you'll be able to see it online. That's that's pretty good. Um, And and you can get this as a PDF online if, if you want to see it. The first kind of person, according to the Bible, is the natural person. This is someone who's decided, not decided yet, to become a follower of Jesus. They've not yet asked for or received the gift of the indwelling spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So this person is not yet in relationship with God, They're not really interested in God ordering their life at this point. The second person is the spiritual person. And this is the person who is directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2. He who is spiritual appraises all things, and we have the mind of Christ. Now, this little diagram is kind of cheesy, but I think there's an important point to it. And the idea is that Christ is on the throne of, of your life you have surrendered every aspect of your life to Jesus Christ. The, the little balloon-like lollipop things um, are the different aspects of your life. Your career, uh, your marriage, your kids, your health, your body, your money, your giving, your vacations. Uh, everything is underneath or aligned under the lordship of Christ. You've yielded it to him. The third kind of person is the worldly or the carnal person. And if you, like me, come from a certain tradition, you've heard about this carnal person uh, many times. This is the Christian who has received Christ, but is trying to live the Christian life in their own strength. 1 Corinthians 3, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? And so this is the person who 
has decided that they believe in Christ, that they trust in Christ, they want to follow Christ, but they still are on the throne of their life. They've not really asked or surrendered their life in any way uh, or the aspects of their life to Jesus. Now, this is the part of the book I have the most trouble with today. I I don't really think you have uh, carnal Christians and spirit-filled Christians like you have chocolate and strawberry ice cream. Um, uh, My experience is that I'm always somewhere in between spirit-filled and carnal. (laughs) Uh, Romans 7, Paul says, I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I live in Romans 7, 2. I find the Christian life to be a long journey uh, in which I constantly am struggling to surrender different parts of my life to the Lord. But I do think that there is a point worth considering here. You can be a Christian and not have much of a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I think what happens is, is we kind of look at Jesus as a life coach. And we put together a board of advisors to help us get through life. Dr. Phil is on it. Deepak Chopra is on it. Our yoga teacher is on it. The Wellness Magazine is on it. The latest diet czar is on it. Jesus gets to speak every once in a while, especially if his words are on a pretty Instagram pic. This is not the Bible's idea of a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled Christian is a Christian whose posture is to allow Jesus' authority in every area of their lives. And so just to ask you a question as we sit here tonight, um, is your life yielded as far as you know to Jesus? If you're a follower of Christ, if you've not yet chosen to follow Christ, then that's not where you are tonight. But if that's where you want to be, if you want to be a follower of Christ... The essence of being a follower of Christ is being a disciple. That Greek word mathetes means someone under the authority of a a teacher. Look at your life tonight. If you were to even sketch this maybe later on in the week. Would the different dimensions of your life be yielded to his authority? Is there some part of your life tonight that is clearly not? You just are holding on to it because, I don't know why, you don't trust them with it, you're afraid what it'll do with it. Think about that. That's a very important question. Is there some part of your life tonight that is not yielded to the Lordship of Christ? I think we could could look at this like a, a business with many departments. When we become a Christian, Jesus owns the business He's the president. He's the CEO. We work for him. Every department ultimately reports to him. And so my relationships, my friendships, with my family and at work are under his authority. My, my finances, purchases, lifestyle, generosity, that's under his authority. My vision, dreams, aspirations, that's under his authority. My body, my sexual desires, my health, that's under his authority. My story and understanding of how the world works and my place in it, that's under his authority. And so Jesus is the president, founder, and CEO of Doug Inc. I ran the business into the ground. He bought it from me with his own blood. And I'm incredibly grateful. So you might think, is Jesus the CEO 
of your life? Does he have the final say in what happens in your life? Who owns the company that is your life? Well, the next part of the book offers four principles for living the spirit-filled life. Here's the first one. God has provided for us an abundant and fruitful Christian life. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Essentially what we're saying is that there is help. There is a spiritual resource available to help us become the kind of people God has created us to be. There, there is a spiritual resource, a power available to help us overcome our addictions, to help us forgive the people who betrayed us, to help us raise our children, to battle our anxiety and depression, to launch new businesses, to paint new paintings, to find our place in the world, to look our loneliness straight in the face, to deal with the cancer diagnosis. The power is the Holy Spirit. And Dr. Bright asks, why is it that most Christians are not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit? And that leads to the second principle. Worldly Christians cannot experience the abundant and fruitful Christian life. And again, I don't like the categories here, but we're going to go with it. The worldly carnal person trusts in his own efforts to live the Christian life. He's either uninformed about or has forgotten God's love, forgiveness, and power. He has an up and down spiritual experience. He cannot understand himself. He wants to do what is right, but cannot. He fails to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I spent many months in the late 19th century. And I read uh, a lot of leading Christian authors of the period talking about the spiritual life. There was a movement at the time that was called the Higher Life Movement. Sometimes it was called the Exchanged Life Movement. Sometimes it was called um, the Keswick Movement after a series of conferences in Keswick, England, K-E-S-W-I-C-K. These teachers believed that there were two distinct phases in a believer's life. That every believer received the Spirit at conversion, but that some Christians could move on to another plane, a higher plane, and they called this entire sanctification. And they said that this occurred when there was kind of a crisis of faith, when a believer yielded fully to Christ and they were ushered into this higher place. I was researching the roots of Pentecostalism, which was born in 1907, and discovered that it grew out of the higher life movement. 
And Pentecostals taught that there were two distinct stages in the spiritual life. The second is a crisis experience called the baptism of the Spirit, accompanied by speaking in tongues. And 50 years later, the Pentecostal movement snuck into the mainline church and the charismatic renewal began. Dr. Bright was anything but a charismatic, but it occurred to me uh, that even though I don't think he realized it, his teaching has been influenced in some ways by the higher life teachers. Uh, his book reminds me of many of the books that I read for my doctorate because there is this, this idea that you are either one or another, a carnal Christian or a spirit-filled Christian, and you can move from one to the other with kind of a, a definitive step. And I, I think the Christian life is messier than that. And what really troubles me about this is I'm wary of any view of spiritual formation that relies too much on a crisis and divides the body of Christ into believers who have had an experience and believers who have had not had the experience. That worries me. But having said that, those books deeply affected me. I spent months reading them. They haunted me. And still do. One of the most powerful was called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China who reached a breaking point in his first term on the field. And then he had a moment when he finally realized what it meant to abide in Christ. And his life and ministry were never the same again, became very fruitful. And he wrote a famous letter to his sister. And I'm just going to quote a couple lines from it. And he's writing right after this experience has happened. And he said to his sister, I have striven in vain to rest in him, but I strive no more. For he is, has he not promised to abide with me, never to leave me, never to fail me? How great was my mistake. I wished to get the sap, the fullness out of him. I saw not only that Jesus will never leave me, but that I am a member of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. I do pray that the eyes of your understanding too may be enlightened, dear sister, that you may know and enjoy the riches freely given in Christ. Oh, dear sister, it is a wonderful thing to be really one with a risen and exalted Savior, to be a member of Christ. Now, the bird book may sound somewhat mechanistic, But what I would suggest to you is that thousands of Christians have found a profound movement in their spiritual experience with God when they came to a point of despair and utter surrender to the divine. That is part of our history too. And I think that is what Dr. Bright is calling us to consider. Now, the third principle, Jesus promised the abundant and fruitful life as the result of being filled, directed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is the Christ-directed life by which Christ lives his life in and through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. One becomes a Christian through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. From the moment of spiritual birth, the Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit at all times. The Holy Spirit is the source of the overflowing life. The Holy Spirit came to glorify Christ. 
When one is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's a true disciple of Christ. In his last command before his ascension, Christ promised the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to be witnesses for him. And then the last main slide. We are filled with the Holy Spirit by faith and we can experience the abundant and fruitful life that Christ promised. You can appropriate the filling of the Holy Spirit right now if you sincerely desire to be directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Confess your sins. By faith, thank God that he's forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future, because Christ died for you. Present every area of your life to God. And by faith, claim the fullness of the Holy Spirit according to his command. Be filled with the Spirit. And according to his promise, he will always answer when we pray according to his will. And the book ends with this slide. And I encourage you, if this is what you desire tonight, to pray it silently with me. Dear Father, I need you. I acknowledge that I have sinned against you by directing my own life. I thank you that you have forgiven my sins through Christ's death on the cross for me. I now invite Christ to again take his place on the throne of my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit as you commanded me to be filled and as you promised in your word that you would do if I asked in faith. I pray this in the name of Jesus. As an expression of my faith, I now thank you for directing my life and for filling me with the Holy Spirit. The last page of the book Dr. Bright talks about a little practice I've used almost every day of my life for 40 years. It's called spiritual breathing. And it goes like this, that we exhale, we confess our sin, we release our concerns, we surrender control, we give problems over to God, and we inhale. We receive the fullness of the Spirit. We breathe in His comforting presence and power. And I do that Many times a day at a traffic light or on my porch when I feel the stress of the day coming on. We are a church that says welcome. At least I hope we are. Come in wherever you are, whatever questions you have, whatever doubts you're wrestling with. And we've tried to create a container where anyone can come in with any question and do their good work here. And we talk a lot about deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, about taking beliefs off of the flannel board and then doing the hard work of figuring out what goes back on the flannel board. We are a congregation who reads widely and critically. There are no banned books here. There are no heresy hunters and nobody's burned at the stake for a different belief. And I I love that about us. But I want to encourage us to also do this work of deconstructing and reconstructing with humility. Because it's just as likely that we are caught up in the spirit of our age as a writer from a hundred years ago was caught up in his. We need to be careful of becoming spiritually arrogant 
and looking at our past tradition that we've rejected, and because it hurt us or failed us, rejecting everything about it. That is a fallacy. That is not reasonable to throw out everything because a part of it hurts you. I would ask, if you come from a spiritual tradition that failed you, what is true about that tradition? What did serve you in that tradition? What was the goal that can withstand the fire? There are some basic, simple, foundational Christian truths that are either true or they're not, and this is one of them. God is with us. That's what this is all about. God is with us. This is the heart of the gospel. You're not alone. God is with you. He's with you through the Spirit. And our capacity to flourish as human beings depends in some way on how we connect with the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. That's, that's really the heart of Christianity. If you, if you don't want to put that back up on your flannel graph, that's fine, but you're not reconstructing a, anything remotely Christian. And I love you. We can talk about it. But there are certain things that got to be on the board. God is with you. The health of your life depends on you learning how to appropriate that reality. Well, years ago, I attended a men's retreat where an old retired missionary named Bud Frey was speaking. Bud raised his family as a Southern Baptist missionary in Africa. He came home and taught spiritual formation at Southwestern Seminary for many years. He was beloved by a generation of students. His sons, Jerry and Jeff, became friends of mine. His grandson, Nathan, plays with the United Pursuit Band here in town. I'd met Bud several times over the years, and I remember thinking that there was something profoundly Christ-like about him. And one day after he spoke at the retreat, uh, I said, Dr. Frey, there's just some peace about you and some joy that I long to have, and I don't have it in my life. Could you, could you tell me how you got that? So we took a walk, and he told me a story, and he said he was on his first term on the mission field running a school. And it was a year where there was terrible sickness and financial challenges, and infighting among the staff and he said he was a broken man and he was preparing to return home to the states and give up then he said one night after he put his children to bed he returned to his little office to pray and he found an old copy of a book that someone had sent him from the states Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret he got down on his knees and he read it cover to cover that night and he fully surrendered his life to Jesus gave him all of his cares and anxieties hopes and dreams and then he said that power and peace flooded him, and he's never been the same since. Now, there are some things about Southern Baptist theology I don't agree with. I would not make a good Southern Baptist pastor. I have some questions about Hudson Taylor's theology of sanctification. But I would be a fool to let those differences keep me from learning from Bud Frey. And so I hope you take the same approach with me with the five mentors I'm going to introduce you to. Let's pray.